0: You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only he can give. To the rest of you, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 11. If you don't own a Bible, the text is, or if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own one, there, Two or three on the back table that are our gift to you, Uh, grab one, but don't leave here without one if you don't have one, okay? Um, If you're not sure where Ecclesiastes is, it's in the Old Testament. Go About halfway through, you get Psalms, halfway through your Bible is Psalms, just keep going to the right. Uh, You'll pass Proverbs, and then it's Ecclesiastes, okay? All right, the core of what we've been looking at over the last few months in Ecclesiastes is that you and I, all of us, are creatures that have been created um, to place our hopes, our hope for meaning, our hope for significance, our hope for identity, our hope for rightness, to be right. We were made to place these hopes in something. And when we do that, that becomes ultimate for us. It becomes that which we we give the most worth in our lives to. Because it is what is there to give us the most, right? We describe it ultimate worth, and that is what the Bible calls Worship the problem is is that we were made to place our hopes only in one thing or, or rather uh, one person just one thing but one person but the problem is is that when we place them anywhere else even if those places are good those things can't hold the weight of those hopes and so they become in the language of this book meaningless we've looked at a, a bunch of stuff over the course of this series right This week we look one last time, uh, because we're coming to the end, I mean, we really only have one more chapter, Um, we come one last time at a place that is incredibly comfortable for many of us, and that's knowledge. We want to understand how things work, to know the answers. However, as we will see, knowledge cannot hold our hopes because we tend to misstep at our very starting point. So if you have your place in Ecclesiastes 11, as is our habit here, would you stand as we uh, come under the authority of God's Word to hear it preached. Uh, and let us remember that this is God's Word. It is given so that, so that we might know Him, He might reveal Himself to us, and we might understand even who we are. It's the Word of God. "'Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth.'" The clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is God's word. It is given so that we might flourish. Let's pray. Father, um, as as this text highlights for us, uh, as your word consistently says, we are people who are not in a neutral position. And so as we hear things, uh, our commitments take over. And if we are not committed to you... Those commitments will lead us astray. And so, Lord, we need you to come and to open our hearts and to, to speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, you are the Lord and the giver of life. We pray that you would birth new life in us, even this morning. You would come and, and make your gospel clear. Let Christ and his cross come to the fore, and the one who speaks fall to the wayside. For you alone, Jesus, hold, up, hold the words of eternal life. So we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I said right before the reading that we're coming to the, to this issue, the, the issue of knowledge, for the last time. And, and here's what I mean. Over the course of this series, we've looked at several different topics that engage with the life of the mind. Okay, uh, We looked at the issue of wisdom. We looked at the issue of certainty. Uh, we've even looked at the issue of, of expectations. Um, and that was last week. And all of these deal with those parts of us that we would call intellectual. And my hope is that The way we conclude this topic will help to shed light on all of them, because in it, what we will see is that knowledge, knowledge is as positional as it is intellectual. It has as much to do with where we begin as to what we think about. It is much about who we know as it is what we know. And so... uh, I want to dig into this text quickly uh, this week because we have a ton to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text, uh, surprisingly, in three ways. Uh, the outline's in your bulletin if you, if you need that, if that's helpful to you. We're going to look at a failure to forecast. We're going to look at a failure to understand. And then, finally, we're going to look at what it means to have a righteous knowledge. Okay? All right. Let's get down to business first with the failure to forecast um, and, and these principles of uncertainty. Look down at verses 1 and 2 if you can. All right. I don't know about you. But one of the worst things in the world to me is um, wet bread. So I really wish he had used a different metaphor uh, for this here in verse 1, but the truth is that it is a metaphor. So, and, and it's a confusing one. Let me tell you what's going on. Old Testament scholars will tell you that both verses 1 and 2 are dealing with financial stuff. It's, it's dealing with business, business transactions. Casting your bread upon the waters has to do with um, setting trade out to sea. Uh, it, it has to do with doing business in, in the world. And, and giving your portion to seven or eight in verse two means basically diversifying investment. Some of you, if I use that language, it's a little more Oh, right. Okay, that's, that's what I do, all right? Diversifying your investment. In other words, what's being talked about in these first two verses is, is business endeavors. And specifically spreading out your investment. And the reason for it is not um, so that you can make the most money in the most different ways, right? The reason for it is given at the, in the second half of verse two. He says this. For you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. So then the reason for diversifying in the the, kind of the world of of our teacher here in Ecclesiastes, the reason for your soggy bread uh, and for splitting things up seven to eight is is not to make a rich portfolio, but because you don't know when bad things are going to happen. And they're going to happen. That's what he says. And that little phrase that he uses there at the end of verse 2: don't know. Or no not, depending on your translation and the way they want to sound hoity-toity. But that phrase occurs four times in six verses. It's like a consistent theme in in this text. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. And if you didn't get it the first three times, you still don't know. And he begins laying out this issue here simply by saying that you don't know what is coming. So it is better to spread things out. In other words, there's no sure thing. There's no kind of sure-fire investment because you literally have no idea what is coming tomorrow. You, individual human, cannot know the future. That's the way he's, he's speaking of this. Okay. Now, where does that lead us? Let's keep looking down at verses 3 and 4 because it leads us right here. He says, look, clouds that are full of rain are going to fall. The rain's going to fall eventually. And, and a tree that falls will fall where it falls, but you will if you spend all your time trying to figure out how and when, you're not going to get anything done. There you go. There's verses 3 and 4 in a nutshell. Okay? And track with me for a second, because these verses make perfect sense in the light of the last ones. If the point of the last verse is, the point of the last two verses is you cannot predict the future. Okay? You cannot predict the future. Then that leads perfectly to what many of us try to do, which is analyze things to death. Right? In light of the fact that we see our finitude, in light of the fact that we go... I. I don't really know what's going to happen. We tend to analyze things to death. Now, these are agricultural illustrations. And most of us in this room, apart from a couple, are not in ag business, okay? So let me help. In verse 4, when he talks about observing the wind when you were sowing, what he's thinking about is a farmer spreading seed. Farmers in the ancient world didn't spread seed by, like, advanced techniques or whatever. They, they literally had a bag and rows, and they're just doing this, Right? And they're spreading the seed. And if the problem is, if the wind blows, the seeds go in other places, right? Uh, and so, uh, when, you, when you're spreading seeds, you don't want high winds. The same is true of rain and harvest. You don't want it to rain before you bring the harvest in. Uh, the picture that he's painting is, is of someone who is trying so hard to mitigate their risk that they don't do anything. They don't actually accomplish anything. They are frozen. They are so 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 uh, stuck trying to wrap their minds around weather patterns. And some of us know exactly what this is like, right? We are like con- constant partakers of the paralysis of analysis. We don't want to make the wrong decision. And so we think if we can just examine the details enough, if we can get enough information, then we can keep failure from happening. And, and the, the teacher's point here in this book is, no, you can't. No, you can't. Look, that cloud, which is full of rain, will drop rain. You just don't know when. And the tree will fall where it falls. You just don't know where. When he talks about to the north and south, it's an it's a, um, ancient kind of Hebrew um, literary device called a merism. It uses two opposites to mean everything, right? Everything in between. So north, south, and everywhere in between. Where it falls, it's going to fall. You, just, you, don't, you have no idea. He's trying to point out that we think we can know We think we can predict if we just look hard enough, just try enough, I'm saying we can't. The best you can hope for, spread things out and play the odds. That's cheery, huh? And so that's the failure to forecast. But now we move also to the failure to understand, right? (coughs) Excuse me. If the last thing pointed out a failure to know how things will go, this one speaks to the failure to know why things are. Look down at 5, verses 5 to 6. He says this. As you do not know, there's that phrase again, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. All right? Stop there. What we need to understand as we come into this is that what is going on here is a full-scale assault on our pride. It's it's nothing less than that. This is a full-scale assault on our pride. Here's what I mean. You and I like to think we understand how the world works, right? Right? how things are going to happen, why they happen the way they do, why people do what they do. Some of us in this room may even be pretty smart, right? Pretty well-educated. got some very educated people in this room. Pretty gifted. When it comes to analytical prowess, some of us even fancy ourselves thinkers, right? A thinker. We're above the mere masses, more thoughtful than the average person. Don't worry, I I kind of fancy myself that way too, so I'm with you in that, okay? Uh, But what the teacher is saying here is that you don't really get it. That isn't to say that you don't understand some things, right? We're not completely ignorant. That would be foolish to say that. Only that you can't have mastery, okay? This is what he's talking about. The problem is, of course, is that we think we do have mastery. We think we do. We can grasp things, understand them, some of us may even be thinking, Rick. We know exactly what happens in the womb. I don't know if you knew this, but we have this thing called ultrasound. You know, it's like I, I know I have four kids. I, I've seen them. You know, uh, I understand the way that works. I'm well acquainted with it. But what he means, though, is not how do babies develop in the womb. But how's the soul get there? Do you know? Do you know how it gums together? I mean, you and I may understand how the material develops we get that, but what about where it is joined to the spiritual? And so he says in the same way that you can't explain that, you can't understand what God is working at. The God who, by the way, made everything. And that last phrase is really important. Remember what I said, this is a full out assault on our pride. What he, what he is getting at here is one of the ways the, spot, the Bible speaks to our failure to be able to have knowledge. It, it is it is we have a failure to have comprehensive knowledge. And the reason for that is because we aren't God. Now, that may sound like a duh to some of us, but, but just follow me for a minute. Because for a long time, our culture has existed under a kind of assumption. The assumption that humanity is on a particular course, right? We began in the cave, and we're simply on our way to something far greater than even where we are. We're kind of developing, and learning, and growing, and and becoming far more uh, intelligent. We look back with a kind of historical arrogance on people in the past. We think on them as fools. because They believed in foolish things. We are so much more enlightened, so much more advanced, so much more smarter than they were, because they believed silly things like miracles, and angels, and demons, and God. We've outgrown them. Now, the foundation for this idea is, of course, that we have this privileged ground of having arrived. Right? We use phrases like, you know, we, we are on the right side of history. Uh, and see how much more advanced we are societally, etc. The teacher is looking at us in all of our historical pride, and he's saying, you are still a creature. You are still limited you are still unable to understand what the God who made everything, not you, by the way, is doing. The point is that he is God and you are not. and That is why knowledge cannot hold our hopes. Because we cannot have enough to understand the world comprehensively. And if you cannot understand the world comprehensively, there will always be gaps, there will always be holes. That basket that is holding your hopes will always have patches that are absent in it. As you all know, when you try and hold something in a bag with holes in it, the bag falls apart. You can't do it. It will always fail you. And so one way that the Bible talks about our limits in knowing deals with our limitedness, right? Being a creature. But there's another way that we don't often see because it's a difference of definition. So let's let's look at this relational understanding real quick. When when you and I talk about knowing, we think about it particularly from a Greek perspective, which is to say nothing Disparaging about the Greeks necessarily, except that we we tend to look at it that way, right? And which, in the kind of the Greek worldview, the ancient Greek worldview, uh, knowing is about observation. It's about observing. It's about taking something and breaking it down into its most basic components, isolating that thing, right? It is from the Greek worldview that we get the idea of the atom, right? Let, let's figure what out something is, what what something is by Dividing it down into its most basic components. Knowledge is to break something down, to isolate it. But when, when the Bible talks about knowing, that's not what it means. That's not what it means at all, actually. That's almost the exact opposite of what it means. When, when the Bible talks about knowing, um, it, it's doing so from a Hebrew worldview, right? Because that's the language that the Old Testament especially was written in. And in the Hebrew worldview, knowledge is about relationships. It's about knowing something in relation to other things. It's about not being a disinterested observer, as if that's even possible. It's about uh, being intimately involved with something else. That is why the word for knowledge that's used here in this passage with the you don't know is the same word that's used when it talks about in the Old Testament um, sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Adam knew Eve. It wasn't just because they were being prudish. Didn't want to say the word. Listen, the Bible says those words a lot. If you think the Bible's prudish, you need to pick up Song of Solomon. Because there's something there, I'm not sure if I should ever preach on that. And it's like, I'd be read the whole time. Okay? Um, but, and if you know me, it's like, that, that's saying something. Okay? Um, not knowing in the scriptures is Intimate. This may be strange for many of us, but in the world of the Bible, it makes sense. Because, you see, the Bible tells the story that God created the world. He created it all good, including us. And he created everything to be in relationship with everything else. That was the way he created things. The only way to know something in that, in that model is to be in relationship with it. You don't stand apart and go, I'm going to figure you out. I'm going to see how you work. I mean, have you ever tried to know another person by doing that? You can never know another person by observation. You have to, the only way you can know another person is by them revealing themselves to you. You only know another person by revelation, not by observation. You may know about another person, but the inner life is only something that can be revealed by someone else. And that's the way everything was made to be. We were made to be in relationship with everything, in an unbroken relationship that the Bible calls shalom, right? That that idea of peace, that that it's not just uh, conflict doesn't exist, but that everything's lining up exactly the way it should be. God is the foundation of everything, and then humanity, and then the rest of creation fills out around it. But the Bible says that we broke shalom. We shattered that by betraying God, That, that we... Uh interestingly enough, when it talks about <clears throat> that point of betrayal, that point of betrayal was about knowing. It was about knowing, in the garden, knowing good from evil. Uh, God gave a test to see if we would depend on him to define reality, <clears throat> to define what is, what is right and wrong, <clears throat> what is good, what is evil. We would depend on him to define what our flourishing would be like and our decline, whether we would try and do that apart from him. Or whether we would remain content to know in a dependent relationship. Because you see, when we're not, when we, when we refuse that dependence, what we're doing is out of fear and out of pride, seeking to know on our own. The world was made to make sense, as that sense is derived from God. But we weren't okay with that. And so, because we wanted to define things on our own, because we thought not only could we be like God, but we had to be like God we decided we wanted to define reality for ourselves. To not be constrained by the limits of someone else. To decide by our own force of will what would be good for us. Something we still do today. It's what we call societal advance. And so we turned from him. and We sought our own way. We sought to know apart from him. Now, as the scripture tells it, on the one hand, the results of that, of turning away, of betraying God, became... Became uh, guilt, right? We became guilty of betraying God and turned from him. But along with that came something else, something that specifically speaks to where we are in this text. The, the, the 16th century Protestant reformers called it, we, we became bent in on ourselves. Uh, what it means is that all of humanity is by now turned away from God. We are, we are now by nature turned away from him. We are seeking life apart from him. Seeking to know, to understand everything apart from him, to define reality for ourselves. God, was, God created the universe so that he was at the center. Holding it together. Un, holding together, not just literally holding everything together, as the scripture says, by the word of his power, but literally making sense of it all by being in the middle. But now we center everything around ourselves. Right? We have whole books on this. We, call, we, 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 we literally use the word getting centered. right? And what we mean by that, by getting centered is we, we orient everything, we orient ourselves, on ourselves. Listen to me. If you are in the, lost in the woods and your compass only points to you, you are lost. You are done. You start gnawing on roots like you are done. The same is true here. We have replaced God as the foundation of our understanding of things. We were made for a dependent relationship on him. Which means dependent on knowledge too. In other words, you and I were made for revelation. But we rejected that. We have rejected how our Creator says we were made to function and do so now by our very nature. The Bible says that we are now turned away from God, which means that knowledge is not neutral and neither are we. Knowledge is not neutral and neither are we. In, in In the New Testament book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that that literally what we have done is we have exchanged God for a lie. Uh, and that we, are, we continually now, by nature, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay? Now stick with me. I know that I just jumped off of this book. So stay with me for a second. What he is saying here is in, in that first chapter of Romans. And if you never read it, I'd encourage you to do that. He's saying in that first chapter that it isn't that God hasn't given enough information to show us his existence. It isn't that God hasn't given us enough information for us to understand how things are meant to function. It is that we are committed to suppressing the truth. Because we are committed to finding knowledge that doesn't include a God who lays claim on us. Now think about what I just said. First of all, think about it this way. It isn't the fact that we suppress the truth that makes us, even according to Paul, unrighteous. Uh, In other words, uh, sinful, betrayers. It is that we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We suppress the truth in our sin. It It is that we are sinful, broken by nature, that we even suppress the truth. Again, knowledge isn't neutral, it's positional. It's positional. Knowledge is a good thing. We were made to know and to be known. But because you and I seek to make it ultimate, because we seek to gain our rightness from it, to exalt ourselves as the captains of our own souls, the champions of our own fate, and seek to make ourselves safe with our analytical prowess, when we do that, it becomes meaningless. Because, friends, no matter how smart you are, and some of you all are brilliant, your knowledge cannot save you. Our problem isn't ignorance. If it was, then knowledge could help. Our problem is that we are stuck, alienated from the God who makes sense out of everything. Now, if you've been at Holy Cross for a while, this is where you expect that I'm going to start talking about Jesus. And I will, in a second. But I want to make sure we're clear on on a couple of things. Because some of us in this room are desperately committed to being right. And when I say desperately committed, you know who you are. Like you don't lose an argument, and when you concede something, you walk away saying, "Well, they'll figure it out one day." Like you're desperately committed to being right. Some of us seem to know everything, and and when I say to know everything, I mean not just about some things. We like to posture ourselves as like we are experts in every field, uh, like, and what's more, because of our overinflated sense of intellectual ability, we we both disdain others and we are afraid of them. Because you see, for us, for those of us who who are desperately committed to being right, uh, knowing creates a status for us. I'm worth something. I'm a thinker. I'm a contrarian, and, and and if someone comes along and and either, A, knows more than us, or exposes the fact that we don't know what we want others to think we know, then we lose that status. And if we lose that status, what is left for us? But others of us don't use it to get a status, we use it as a way to stay safe, right? I mean... When things go haywire in our lives, what we're looking for is to figure out what all the technical terms are. for Whatever the situation is. From everything from finance to medicine and somehow if we can figure all those out, then we've wrapped our arms around it. I know. I know. Let me tell you, status seeker, knowledge can never give you the status you long for. Because what you were longing for is not to be the smartest dude in the room, but to be reconciled to God, I know. Man, I have chased that status for a long time. You were hoping that being smart will be enough, and people will respect you, they will love you. Friend, you are aiming far too low. And the same is true for you, safety seeker. Listen, I've been there. I've sat there as a doctor explained my son's cancer to me. And I felt the urgent need to know exactly what is going on in his body because I hated feeling powerless. But that information gave me no power. I still couldn't affect anything. And what I longed for in that moment, what I was hoping that knowledge of, you know, all of these terms that I didn't go to school for upteen years to figure out exactly what that meant, what I was hoping that would do in the long run so let me know that someone greater than me loved me and would rescue me from the shadow of death. But what knowledge could never give us, God gave us in Jesus. Because remember, friends, our problem is not ignorance. Our problem is guilt and corruption. And so no matter how smart you are, it doesn't get rid of your guilt. And you can't be smart enough to overdo your corruption. And you certainly can't get smart enough to make things right between you and God. Jesus' life was perfectly lived in dependence before God, and he died as a sacrifice for our sins. Look, I know even saying that is offensive to some of y'all, and, but, but if you think about it, it, it makes sense. That is the nature of forgiveness. If someone is wronged, if someone is betrayed, either the betrayer bears the weight of that, and we call it justice, or the one who's betrayed bears the weight of that, and we call it Forgiveness. Okay? And that's what Jesus did. Jesus died in your place as God bearing the God the, the betrayed one bearing the weight of of the betrayal that you and I did. Jesus died in your place and then rose in justification to show that the offense that had been paid or that the offense had been paid and that death had been defeated. But here's the kicker. Some of you know this, but I need to say it to you again. Because grace is something that cannot be stated enough. Okay? He offers this to you by faith. This is not something you have to get yourself together for or or to figure out all the details of. You simply accept the gift in Christ. Repent of seeking your own way and place your hopes in him. And when you do, you will be restored to God. You will be restored to the truth. You will have what you're... You'll have the status that you're, you're, you were hoping being the smartest dude in the room is going to be able to give you. I'm loved. I'm accepted. You'll have the safety that no technical jargon could ever give you. And that leads me to the proper lens. Look, some of you may be thinking, Sir Rick, what you're saying is, if I place my faith in Jesus, then everything will make sense. No. No. No, listen. If that were the case, we would simply be using Jesus to get knowledge. And then knowledge stays ultimate. What it does is frees us so that we can return to depending on our on God for our understanding of the universe. That's all it does. Now again, some may be thinking does that mean we throw out learning, we throw out science, etc. No, 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 no. It means that we come to an understanding that no knowledge is neutral. No knowledge is neutral. If you are a Christian this morning, I need you to listen close. When it comes to beliefs about God, about the world, about us, you and I need to let Scripture, which is God's revelation, right? His self-revelation. We need to let Scripture frame what we know. Here's what I mean. It is becoming popular to judge moral truth based on being, quote, on the right side of history, right? Last time I checked, history could not give value to anything. Persons give value, not forces. Okay? Even if Heidegger was right, history is still impersonal. It cannot give value to anything. Because this whole position assumes, again, that we are more privileged than those primitives back then. Those loopy people. It is arrogance. Another popular way of determining what is true is the notion of what just you know seems right, just feels good. It feels right to me, or or by placing some value that we hold highly—love, justice, logical consistency—like those are the important ones in our particular culture—and then we judge all of the scriptures and thus God through that. In other words, for God to be loving, He has to be like. X. For, for God to be just, he has to allow X, or he has to champion uh, our pet issue. And oftentimes, this uses biblical words, but not with biblical meanings, right? And Some of you are like, well, Rick, he needs to answer my questions. Like, he, needs to, he needs to at least answer them to my satisfaction, or at least come around to my way of thinking. Why? Listen, And I don't care where you are in this room on some of these things, but I I need you to hear me. You do realize that what you think of sexuality or of justice or whatever isn't even universally held today in the world. Better yet, throughout history. And yet you think your opinion needs to be God's. Do you not see how both arrogant and imperialist that is? We must let the Bible frame how we understand the world. For instance, in the Scriptures, loving someone does not mean letting them do whatever they want, find self-fulfillment, or have perfect autonomous freedom. That is not love. Love in the Scriptures is seeking the flourishing of another at cost to yourself. Being just in the Scriptures, is not about being fair. You cannot read the Bible and think, if God is just, that he is fair. It's not about being fair. It's about being true to the covenant. That is what being just is in the Scriptures. Knowledge is not neutral, friends. It always begins with a commitment. Uh, You know, the church fathers had had a phrase that they would throw out a lot, um, I'm going to butcher the Latin. There's like two of you that are going to know this. But they they would say, credo et intelligentum, which meant, I I believe so that I might understand. I believe so that I might understand. The commitment always comes first. If if you're a Christian this morning and you don't know what the Bible says about something, start reading. Or ask one of your elders to help you. Talk about it in your small group. but But don't simply make the judgment based on, well, this kind of seems right to me. Look, if, if, if you found someone who was hungry and they had before them a plate of broken glass that was painted to look like fruit, you're like, well, this seems like fruit to me. If they eat it, they die. Our understanding of reality is that grave. Grave. It is that grave. Please don't simply make a declaration based on history's judgment. You and I are trapped. We are trapped by nature, not just in ignorance, but in alienation from God. In consistently suppressing the truth because we don't want to have anything to do with him. But the gospel is, friends, that God, because he loved us, came in Jesus to rescue us, to free us from that being entrapped so that we could return knowledge from being ultimate to being good. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you do rescue us from our sin. Thank you that you have given us, as Peter says in in his epistle, everything we need for life and godliness. That Jesus, you have told us that eternal life is not knowing about you, but knowing you intimately and personally. That, Lord, you have redeemed us to know the truth and you sanctify us in your truth, that your word is truth. For some of us in this room, that is a new thing. We don't, we wouldn't even know where to start when it comes to your, your, your scriptures. Others of us have grown cold in addressing them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart, a new heart, a heart to believe, a heart to lay our hopes on Jesus and then turn to that revelation of him and seek to know. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those who fervently engage in the life of the mind, but do so from the basis that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need you. We need you to rescue us from our darkness and bring us into the kingdom of of your light. We ask all this in Christ's name.